1: Hello everyone, I'm your host James Rogers and this is the History Hit Warfare podcast. We say that we're on the front line of military history, but it really is the place for cutting edge military histories. Every week, twice a week, I bring you brand new histories from leading military historians, veterans and policymakers that range from Napoleonic battles through to Cold War confrontations from the Normandy landings up to the War on Terror and 9-11. If you're liking what you hear, pop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It takes a sec, but it really helps us get out there to everyone who loves history. In fact, do it wherever you get your podcast. You can also follow us online on Twitter at historyhitww WW2 and on Instagram at James Rogers History. We've got a growing community of you. We love hearing from you. You're helping us to arrange brand new episodes on the histories you want to hear, so you can get in contact through warfare at historyhit.com. Go ahead, do it. We want to hear from you now this episode is right at the end of the Second World War. It's with Helene Munson who's here to talk to us about Nazi child soldiers. At the end of the Second World War, there were hundreds of thousands of German children who were sent to the front lines in the largest mobilisation of underage combatants by any country before or since. Helene's father, Hans Juncker, was one of these child soldiers. Now, Helene's been able to track her father's journey from the age of nine and his status as a gifted child in the Nazi education system, which ultimately led him through to being deployed on the Eastern Front. I mean, if a reminder is ever needed of the systematic indoctrination and the ruthless bloodshed of the Nazi regime, then this episode is it, then Helene's family history is that reminder. So here is Helene Munson on Hitler's Child Soldiers. Hi, Helene. Welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today?
2: Wonderful. Thank you, James. I'm so excited to be sharing this with you.
1: Yes, I'm fascinated by your family history here, because at the end of the Second World War, hundreds of thousands of German children were sent to the front line in the largest mobilisation of underage combatants by any country ever in history. And your father, Hans Duncker, was one of these children. So tell me a little about Hans. How was he first incorporated into this Nazi structure of education and indoctrination?
2: You know, it's a story I had to learn myself. I didn't really know much about it because in Germany, the subject has been pretty taboo. So nobody talked about it the entire time that I was growing up there. Not just my father, but all the men around. I mean, it was it was really silence. And a lot of them had very serious problems. You know, they lost limbs and stuff, but nobody talked about it. And so um, the way he ended up in it was that, if you don't mind, I go back on the family history, but my grandfather had left Germany after the First World War, because we forget he was a war child in World War I, and that had kind of turned him off Germany so much that he had emigrated to South America, to Chile, where he had an uncle, and that's where my father was born, and he was raised in the, the first nine years of his life in South America, and then something unfortunate happened. The family came to visit the family in Germany from Latin America and my grandfather's aunt, who was a teacher, and every teacher had to be in the Nazi party in order to be able to keep their job. So she was quite well connected in this uh, field. And she said, you know what? I have a great idea. This boy is so smart, so talented. We're going to get him the best education ever. I know the perfect boarding school for him. And this happened to be a Nazi elite school. My grandparents were not aware of that. They were just happy. It was a fantastic school. They had hang gliding. They had their own sailing harbor. They had access to a golf course. They were brought by bus to the opera on the weekends in Munich. They went skiing. They had four different school uniforms. And guess what? The parents paid almost nothing because it was such a bright boy that they had that he qualified for free schooling, not realizing it was a deal with the devil. So that's how my father ended up in that school. And I go in the book, I go through the chapters. I mean, all the ones who attended had a very uh, two-sided relationship with it. On the one hand, their parents could have never given them this luxurious life. But then in the end, they were just cannon fodder like everybody else. And that was very hard for them to take, that they thought they were single-handedly going to save the nation when they were sent into war. But they ended up being totally abused.
1: Now, I know you were able to go through your father's diary from this period in time. Can you just tell us how old he was when he was transferred from South America over into a Nazi higher, well, a Nazi elite education establishment?
2: He was nine years old when he came to... Uh, nine
1: years nine old? Nine years old. Was that not a then, massive culture shock?
2: Oh, it was terrible. He he would talk about that. And then when he started school, he had just turned 10, I believe. He had just celebrated his 10th birthday. And uh, he did talk about the, the culture shock because he had learned Spanish. He was basically... Um, it was kind of... They were hazing him. You know, They were, but it was the school system. They were abusing each other, the the children, and kind of, you know, playing pranks on each other, beating each other up. He writes... a. About that in his school diary.
3: In the years we have been here, one remembers a few students who are no longer here. Each class has the right to weed out foreign bodies whose characters are not good enough to make the grade. They can be reported to the educators, even if their academics and performance in sport are sufficient, it is the character itself that counts.
2: He writes about how they were, the older boys were in charge of them and they would kind of make the younger ones suffer for it. And then they had educators who kind of played this famous, they call it maskenball, which is charades kind of, they had to change all their clothing. And then when they were done changing all their clothing, their clothing was in a mess and they got punished for not having a tidy wardrobe. Anyway, so there were all these kind of things going on and it was a rough experience, but I think he was proud of the fact that he did make it through and he did kind of uh, advance in the rank of the
1: boys. It's interesting that you say advance in the rank, because everything I hear you saying here about the hazing, the being punished for not having tidy rooms, it all sounds very militaristic, doesn't it? It sounds like they were most certainly being readied to be future officers. Is that the case? Was this almost like a a military prep school as opposed to just being about a Nazi education?
2: That's a very interesting point you're raising, and I had to learn about that as well. All the elite schools were definitely a uh, kind of miniature training institutions. I mean, their uniforms uh designed by a very prestigious German designer. I won't mention the name, because they're famous today as well. They were military uh, officers' uniforms. But Felderfing, the school he went to, was different because it had been started by Röhm, who had been head of the SA, whatever the abbreviation. And Röhm was shortly afterwards murdered by Himmler and his SS. That was the Knight of the Long Knives. And they got rid of the SA and instead yes, Himmler and his SS took over. So the school, in a way, languished. But they had an excellent director who, who was in charge and who kept the school going. And it became the top school in the nation. And every GAU, that's what they called the regions in Germany, was only allowed to send two students. So my aunt had clearly coached my father in order to pass the examinations. The most gifted only. And um, when I talked to my father's friends, he pointed out that afterwards, the Nazi uh, elite sent their own children because it was just the best school in the country. And so my father was in the same school as Hitler's godson, who is Adolf Martin Bormann, the son of Martin Bormann, who was in the same school as my father. And the boys like my father, who had gone there because of their talent, looked down on them because they were only there because their parents were important people in the Reich. But there was a whole hierarchy. There were also Napolas, which is an abbreviation for something really nobody can pronounce, Nationalsozialistische Erziehungsanstalt. And the Napolas had actually hijacked the old cadet, the Prussian cadet institutions. So the old German aristocratic families were sending their sons to the Napolas. And then there were the of Hitler schools, which was again a little bit of a slightly different thing. And the absolutely worst were the uh, Junkerschulen and the Ordensburgen, and those were founded by Heinrich. Himmler. Those were absolutely horrific. But that was basically the structure of the elite system. So my father's school was meant for the future diplomats and ministers. And then the Napolas were meant for the army leadership. And then the uh, out of Hitler schools were meant for the technocrats. And the Hitler youths were just going to be soldiers. <laughs> so anyway, that educational system is not very well known outside Germany. And even in Germany, it's obscure.
1: Yes, I knew nothing about that. That's Thank you so much. That really helps illustrate Well, it helps illustrate something really important here, that your father was the creme de la creme of the Nazi crop here, primed to be potentially a future minister. And this gets me down to a core question I want to ask. What were they taught? What was the syllabus? What sort of things were put into their
2: heads? Again, twofold. They were taught very well, which they had the best of teachers as well. And uh, Franz, my father's friend, who survived, because I only started this research after my father died, in a way to make it up to him that I never engaged with him on this, but I had the chance to talk to my father's surviving school friend. And he had said there were clearly some what they called sharp, sharp Nazis out there. And they were primarily in like physical education and some of those subjects. And they were, were, of course, taught eugenics. Everything was slanted towards Nazi ideology. But at the same time, they were still taught languages. They were still taught literature. They were still taught mathematics. Although, I mean, there were these nasty examples that I put in the book where they give mathematical examples of, you know, how many mentally handicapped people does it cost the state uh, to, to support them versus how many houses for up-and-coming young families can you build with that money. So there, were, there, there was nasty stuff in there. Um, that is as,
1: shocking, isn't it? I mean, politically yeah. loaded mathematics dripping I with hate. Just awful stuff, isn't it, Helene?
2: It is awful stuff. And I was very shocked, but I was also very conflicted because some of the students actually liked the education, but other ones really hated it because um, they were bred to feel nothing. They were told that they should be hard. Hitler said that our youth has to be hard as Krupp steel. That was very much a problem. And my father suffered from that, that he had to be so hard and that he had to be so so callous in order to uh, survive in that environment.
3: One is only supposed to be a mass, as a part of a mass, second-class, cheap substitute, cannon fodder without a feeling of community or pride. Yes, it seems to me that my life's purpose has already been carefully planned for me, and I am trying now to fulfil it.
1: You said you didn't engage with your father about this topic before he passed away. Did he want to engage or was this a topic that you kind of broadly knew about but wanted to avoid yourself? It it must have been a very difficult thing for you to deal with and find out about as you were going forwards.
2: It was really, really difficult, yes. But the reason I went on this trip is because I failed him. The year before he died, I think he, in a way, he knew he was going to die. He had cancer, uh, but uh, it it went very rapidly. And he had tried to engage me. He had tried to get me to read the diary. And I was busy. You know, I was taking care of a teenage daughter. I had a house to, you know. So the last thing I wanted to do was engage with him over it. And I picked up the diary and I'd started reading a passage where he uses all this overloaded language that they were taught. And now I know that was his. Not his fault. This is how they were taught to use words like grand and and honor and the fatherland and the beauty of the German forests and the honesty of the German women. And, I mean, they were taught in those concepts. But it's, when it's I not read a nighttime
1: I, read or a holiday read, is it? It's uh, it's, it's a heavy one <laughs> to say the least. It's a heavy one
2: anyway. So I feel I failed him, and that's why I went then starting research, uh, researching the whole thing. He did want to talk about it close to his death, but his entire life, no.
1: Was he uh, ashamed of the education that he had got? Was he able to reconcile in his own mind and move past these values, I suppose, that he had been indoctrinated with?
2: Yes, I think after the war, they recognised this was all really, really wrong. I think the main problem they had is that they felt incredibly betrayed. They had been good boys. They had absorbed all this stuff. They had learned all this stuff. They had done all this stuff. And then after the war, it turned out it was a giant lie. He did regret that, for no, no doubt. And um, in his political career, I'm talking about that in my book, he always said that. He said, I wanted to have Germany have a good name again. This is what I spent my life working on. That's why he wanted to be a diplomat, so he could represent and show the world that Germany is something else, not just Nazi culture.
1: And and he was betrayed in a very different way as well. Because, of course, this form of education, this, this um, weird way of twisting young people's minds but he was also sent as a young child at the end of the war in the spring of 45 into battle himself is there much in your father's diaries is about this period in time
2: oh yeah that's what it mostly is all about he wrote this about starting out and they are tra- they go to training and suddenly they realize that uh, at school they were called by the other schools, by the Napolas, they were called the gold pheasants because they were so privileged. And uh, the gold pheasants were, were was like a, a nickname for the Nazi officers who came in brown uniforms with kind of gold epaulettes or whatever they had. So they, they were so privileged. And when they were at the barracks, suddenly they were together with the last criminals of Europe that could be enlisted because, you know, there were no soldiers left.
3: The conditions during those last months of war were absolutely terrible. The physical demands were taxing, but worse was the psychological strain of being thrown together with a mixed bunch of semi-criminals, where theft was commonplace, daily occurrence. It is under these conditions that we had to fulfil our highest duty at the front.
2: So there were no men left. And it was a big shock. You know, you can say that, yes, my father was an SS soldier. But the truth is, they were 17 year old boys. They were put on a cattle train and they were shipped to the east and they had no idea where they were going to be uh, stationed. And in fact, because they were so eager to fight, my father went to the office and said, When are we finally going to fight? And he describes that in the diary, how, the, how he doesn't like the expression on the face of the officer because they try to keep them in, in holding position as long as they can, the, the old officers, because they know these boys are going to get killed in no time at the front.
3: The next morning brought more reassignments, confusion and relocations. As a representative of my six friends, I went straight to the officer in charge to ask him to be immediately deployed to the front when I heard that we were supposed to be trained some more. A knowing, somewhat mocking smile around the mouth of the commander felt very unsettling when he refused. So your
1: father was a a young SS soldier, a child soldier at this point, in 1945, on the Eastern Front, facing the Red Army, hell-bent on revenge after the atrocities that have been faced against them. At what point does your father face battle?
2: They are kept for a while in the woods... Uh, and then finally, in the village of—that's why his original diary was called Savada, uh, and that is the name of uh, the village where they fought. So uh, then they finally were put into um, combat in Zavada. and it is is that, a is a that in the
1: house. Czech Republic.
2: That's in the Czech Republic. It took me a long time to find it because uh, there are several villages with that name in Poland. But I could uh, correlate it with the other villages that he mentions. And it was difficult because those used to be Sudeten Deutsche, Sudeten German regions. But there were three and a half million uh, Germans that were expelled after the war. So these towns today have Czech names. So I returned to that village. And that's where they fought. And they fought the house-to-house battle. They burned down almost the entire village. And when I talked to the mayor, he was astonished how well I knew the village because of his descriptions. The manor house, then there was a well that they were hiding at. That part is really, really heart-wrenching because that's where he loses his best friend Carl. And it's kind of spoiling the story, but um, his best friend Carl gets shot and he says that Carl died. But the truth is they can assume he died, but they didn't know they had to leave him behind. They had to leave his, their bleeding, dying comrade lying there behind because otherwise they would have gotten shot as well. And that was kind of a defining moment in terms of his war experience.
1: So Carl was a, another young student from the school, your grandfather's best friend, who is then left for dead as they desperately and hastily retreat even further back away from the Red Army.
2: There were six of them. And when they start out, they almost talk as though they're on a school excursion. You know, OK, they're hanging out in this cattle train and they're, they're smoking. No, they're not, I guess they're not smoking, but they're eating and, and sleeping and doing whatever. And then they get into this absolute massacre. And another thing which really, really haunted me that he doesn't quite describe, and that's what I talked about with Franz, that there are certain things he didn't write in the diary very clearly. At some point, his, his gun is jammed and it sounds like he clobbered a Russian soldier to death with the jammed gun. I mean, I cannot even imagine the the trauma that leaves for a 17-year-old to kind of have to go through this type of experience.
1: If you've always wanted to know more about some of the key events that shaped the medieval period and the modern world, then Gone Medieval from
3: History Hit is the podcast for you. From this... The king ordered all the Danish men who were in England to be killed because he'd heard a rumour that they were trying to topple him. They seemed to have been beheaded one by one in some kind of systematic manner. To this, The stakes are so high. Even when she first appears on the scene, Joan says, I've got one year to do this. So she knows that this is going to come to a sticky end. With a whole
1: lot of this in between.
3: The knightly class is a group of people who have been chosen by God. Armour is a physical proof that that's literally true.
1: With guests lined up at the drawbridge, it's time to let them in and begin the feast for your ears that is Gone Medieval. The podcast from History Hit. Together, my co-host, Dr Kat Jarman and I, Matt Lewis. We've gone medieval and we're waiting for you to join us.
0: Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. ching Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage.
3: All thoughts concerning a soon-to-be-approaching, inevitable German defeat were forgotten now that we stood at the front. In the meantime, I went with hands deeper into the forest to practice shooting to find out the accuracy of our guns. I had used the strap from the gas mask canister as a gun strap and attached a knotted rope to the canister. This is how I entered the war. No soldier epaulets, rank, insignia or unit badge, just a grey bundle from which a cocky, Light grey cloth cap was sticking out on top.
1: So this is the, the most brutal fighting you get. This is hand-to-hand fighting in what is now the, the Czech Republic. Where do they move after this massacre, after this battle?
2: Well, he considered himself very lucky that he got shot. Actually, he didn't get shot. He got, uh, it was a piece of scrap nail that injured his leg. And he couldn't walk anymore, so one of the other soldiers has to take him on a wheelbarrow to the, to the bunker to get first aid. And one of the things I wanted to mention also is that because he had kind of worked his way up in respect and leadership, he was made, I think it's a platoon leader, if you command nine other men. He was, you know, at his age, he was made a platoon leader, and he was commanding a man older than him.
3: Randomly and quickly, platoons and squads were formed. Every orderly who so far had only been a hero in an office was given a platoon. I became a squad leader and picked my nine men. It was a very simple allocation of ranks in those terrible last days. Whoever ran in front became an officer, whoever ran back was shot.
2: That really haunted him all his life that he was not able to save these men, you know, in a way that he felt he failed them. But by the time he was injured, most of them were dead anyway. And then his own odyssey starts of being shipped from hospital to hospital in the Czech Republic. And he uh, experiences how the Russians take over. When they are in Karlsbad, which that's the only name I really know. There It has a different name today in Czech. The Americans apparently leave and leave it to the Russians. And so then he goes through the whole odyssey of being injured and from hospital to hospital where nobody wants to take this train of wounded people. And then they, they ended up being shot at because the train is not marked as a hospital train. So the, the train gets attacked again. And more people die on the, on the train and the injured. And he gets injured again as well. It just goes on and on. And, and then a few months later, he's able to get out of the hospital and he walks on a crutch. But at that point, uh, he gets into Russian captivity. The Russians catch him.
1: It really shows the, the harsh brutality of the Second World War, and that chaos in that period towards the end of 1945, where you have the embers of the Cold War burning as well. As the US retreat from certain areas, the Soviets move through, no one wants to take responsibility for the German soldiers that are there and the the injured and wounded because no one has capacity to do so, and of course maybe there's also no love-lusts between them in any way, shape, or form What happens when your father is is moved through into a a Soviet gulag, I suppose you could call it? We've had Susan Grunwald on this podcast before, who's taken us through what life was like in those camps. And uh, we actually also had the son of a, a Czech resistance fighter telling us about that period, that pivotal period in the Czech Republic as well. I think that that's something that really helps us piece both of these things together. So I say to our listeners to check that one out as well on the Czech resistance and on life in the... Gulag. But what was life like for your father at this point as we move from 1945 into 46?
2: Actually, he still makes it home in 45 in, in oh, the summer. Wow. But there is but there is, there is a story to it. Um, and you're absolutely right to mention the chaos. One of the things that he keeps mentioning again and again is like how when they were at the front, they were hungry and hungry and hungry because very often the supply cart wouldn't come through. And then when they were in retreat, this is something that I discovered was happening all over Germany. The Nazis, the hardcore Nazis were evacuating first with all the supplies and they cannot believe their eyes how many supplies are shipped back while they were being shot to pieces and are going hungry suddenly the nazi elite kind of pushes us through and it's only to the doctors up to the doctors who actually force these cars to take the wounded with them that they even get evacuated as far as his russian captivity it wasn't a very long event and this is one of the stories he always told us all his life. This is a story I knew, which is very fascinating. He was, uh, when he was in the captivity, he was asked whether later on he wanted to live in East Germany or in West Germany. And this was asked by the Russians who were already foreseeing, seeing the writing at the wall. And even though he was solidly West German, we have no relatives in East Germany ever. He said he was East German and he wanted to live in the East. You
3: spent four days there in the expectation of a dubious fate. But suddenly the doors opened. All who wanted to stay and live in Saxony, now a province under Russian administration, were allowed to leave and go wherever they wanted to. But this was without any papers, so one always stood the risk of being captured again by any Russian who felt like corralling a few Yermanskis.
2: So he was released. Otherwise he might have very well be shipped to a Gulag and, you know, not made at home.
1: Well, so many didn't make it home until much later in the 1950s. And I was going to ask you, I wonder if it's your your father's elite schooling and elite links back into what was then the, the aftermath of the Third Reich. Might have played a hand in him being released early, but this was a simple pragmatic matter of the Soviets, of those who said that East said the right thing and they were just let go to return back to Germany.
2: In fact, the opposite. If, they would have, if he would have opened his mouth and he said that he had any connection, they would have shipped him first. There was no privilege in any of that. In fact, back in Germany, when he returned, he had not finished, even though at that point he was, had turned 18, he had not finished his high school because they had sent him off to, to fight and they had no time to finish it. A law was passed by the Allies that the boys from that school were not allowed to go into higher education. So they had to hide their status of having attended that school.
1: Well, I suppose that makes perfect sense. But what happens to your father from this point then? How does does he go through a process of... Kind of formalized, I suppose you could call it a, a de-radicalization. Or does he just get swept into the German school system? Does he return to to South America? What happens to your father next?
2: Well, you're absolutely right about the denazification process was a big thing all over Germany.
1: Absolutely. And
2: um, uh, I do remember that my aunt told me that she had to go through denazification. That was the aunt, my great aunt. That was the aunt who had sent him into the school in the first place. He he was kind of lucky. He didn't have to go through much. But his friend Franz was interned as a werewolf. Supposedly, there were like renegade Hitler boys left who were still fighting. And it was supposedly some kind of organization called the Werewolves. And, I um, didn't
1: know this. This is incredible.
2: <laughs> and so he was imprisoned as a werewolf, supposedly. Although actually Franz was an opera singer. And the only reason he hadn't gone with my father onto the Eastern Front, but had stayed in the anti-aircraft unit, was that, that he had flat feet, he hated walking, and he was a singer. You know, that was the last thing he wanted to do with his voice, you know, crawl through the mud (laughs) and get shot at. So, but in any case, there was this werewolf movement, um, but my father escaped all of that. He, and and I think part of what saved him that is that he was technically a Chilean citizen. He was born in Chile. He was eligible to be a, a displaced person and be reunited with his parents in South America. And so he went, instead of going home, he went to a displaced persons camp, and that was Cavalar at the border to, to Holland. And he didn't write anything about that. He stayed there for some months in the hope of being repatriated. But his father, they had now moved to Brazil. My grandparents had moved to Brazil. His parents had moved to Brazil. But he was only eligible to be repatriated to Chile, because that's what his passport was. So my grandfather had to send him the money for the passage. But my grandfather in Brazil was broke because he had been interned by the Brazilians as a German on the island of Guanabara, the island in the Bay of Guanabara. It's Ilha de Flores, I think it's called. So he came back ill with tuberculosis because the Brazilians did the same that the Americans did interning the Japanese during the war. Uh, to the Germans. Also, that's something forgotten by history. Nobody knows that anymore. And so my, my father had to leave the uh, displaced persons camp and go home to his aunt. And then he found a school where they allowed him to attend high school. So at age 19, then he went back to doing high school. And there the boys helped each other. They were all in the same situation. So it was a classmate from Feldafing who said, there's a high school In the Ruhr area, totally far away from where his own hometown was, which is northern Germany. But they will take you if you come here. So he went there and did his abitur, which is our version of the high school diploma. And then he went to university and forgot about his parents until a few years later when he had earned enough money himself to get himself to Brazil. So he never saw his parents, I think, for 12 years after they had left him in that Nazi school.
1: Wow, I mean was he able to repair his relationships with his parents did he hold animosity against them for them placing him in in that situation especially as his father himself had like you say fled after the war having been himself put in that same situation
2: He never forgave his father they only reconciled at their de- at his at the father's deathbed the mother actually he, he took care of his mother. He paid for her upkeep because she didn't have a pension coming from South America. So when she came to Germany, he actually paid for her housing and for her healthcare and everything. I think he was quite fond of her.
1: Now, you mentioned ever so briefly in passing earlier that your father was able to go on and to become a diplomat to shake off the shackles of his Nazi education and to put Germany on a, on a proud footing into the Cold War, into being a, a diplomat for the, the, the West Germans, is that correct? Right,
2: the West Germans, yes.
1: So tell us a little bit about your father's role as a diplomat for West Germany. What, oh, yeah. what role did he fulfil?
2: He started out in press uh, ministry, and from there he switched to, to the foreign ministry. Public relations was very much his field. He worked a lot with the press because of his background. He was first stationed in Brazil and he returned as his last posting in Brazil. And uh, it was interesting because they were doing the Echo 92 at the time, the ecological conference. And he was very proud of that, that he had helped to, uh, to put this together. He was also in England. He was uh, first secretary at the embassy in London. I mentioned this little humorous story where he's presented the uh, coat of St. James. And because he has this giant Argentinian medal around his neck and he was very tall. So Princess Margaret thought he was the German ambassador. So he confused him. So that story, kind of that little anecdote went down the family. (laughs) But his proudest achievement was... Actually, the job which was the hardest. He was ambassador in Angola, and that was after the revolution. The country was shattered, and because of its natural wealth, the Russians had taken over, and the the Western governments were were all trying to get their foothold on there because of of all the you know from the diamonds to the rare earths to the whatever they have there. We said, why are you doing this job? But it was the most important job because um, he helped with the transition of Namibia, which had been the former Südwest Africa, and had thousands and thousands of German farmers. And those farmers were the the people who had fled in in 1945, the advancing Russians. And they had rebuilt their lives. And uh, those farmers were in danger of these farm killings that were happening in South Africa. And so part of the negotiation for Germany to help Namibia into independence were the negotiations that they wouldn't just expropriate the Germans. Laws were passed afterwards that when the German farmer would sell his property, it would be sold to the government and it would be given to somebody um, local, somebody black African. That way, it avoided the bloodshed that you had in South Africa. So that way, Namibia stayed pretty much intact and and had a more gradual transition. And that was his proudest accomplishment of uh, his diplomatic career, to have played a role in that.
1: So your father was able to end his career as a a diplomat of peace, ensuring a peaceful transition from that colonial period through to a period of independence for Namibia?
2: Yes, and it meant a lot to him. And he was very traumatized. I mean, when my brother showed an interest in military paraphernalia that they had dug up in the forests, My father went wild. He said, none of that will ever come into my house. And I had picked up some books from somebody that were, which I didn't even know. I was not old enough to know the difference what these books were that were Nazi content. I mean, he he went absolutely crazy. I, I was not allowed to bring them into the house. So yeah, he tried his best. He could not undo what had happened, but he tried his best.
1: Thank you so much, Helene, for sharing your father Hans's story, but also the story of a whole generation of German children who silently carried this shame of what they were taught, what they did, and what they suffered into old age. Hopefully it can act as a warning for future generations, and your book is an important part of that. Tell us the title of your book and where we can buy
2: it. Boy Soldiers, A Personal Story of a Nazi Elite Schooling and Its Legacy of Trauma. And right now it's out only in the UK, uh, published by the History Press, which I think is an absolutely fantastic place for it. You can get it directly from the History Press or on Amazon. Um, there will be a US edition on uh, next April. So it will be published as an experiment from New York City. But for now, it's the British one.
1: Wonderful. Helene, thank you so much for your time and for sharing this family history.
2: Thank you so much. And I do hope that it's a small contribution that things like that will never happen again.